Please open your Bibles to Ephesians 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Let's remind ourselves about New Testament worship. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. This is another ancient landmark of our church that I was convicted this week. We wanted to give something special to the Lord. So we're going to do things a little bit different. The New Testament is wide open as to the format of services. There is no formatted service in the New Testament. It's a shame that everybody copies each other, and so we end up in a very similar format. But there is no, there is no format like that in the New Testament. It's just issues of content that we want to have. And so here's the issue of content. We need to have singing. And the singing needs to be with some deep doctrinal lyrics or words because it says, speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, the three kinds of music in a church, which is why we have our four hymnals, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. The melody that's the most important is the melody in our hearts. Turn over a few pages to Colossians 3 and verse 16 for a related verse of Scripture. Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. That is Christ's doctrine and his gospel in us richly, fully, strongly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. There's the three kinds again. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So the melody in our hearts is the grace of God causing us to rejoice. My wife and I had a wonderful time last night, and I don't want to take away time from the men that are coming to follow me, but for a couple of hours before we went to bed last night, especially one particular song, and can it be 455 in the Red Hymnal that we have. Charles Wesley wrote it at the age of 31, shortly after he was converted. It's one of his first songs of about 10,000, and we were just greatly moved by it. We listened to it about 10 times at high volume, a large church singing it, and can it be. Bold, I approach the eternal throne. Bold, I approach. We were just bawling little babies. Nobody approaches that throne, let alone boldly, except in Christ our Lord. In Christ our Lord, we can boldly approach that throne. When Isaiah saw that throne high and lifted up in Isaiah chapter 6, all he could do was cry out, Woe is me! But not in Christ. Boldly. I approach the eternal throne. We had a wonderful time because we had grace and melody in our hearts. And so it tells us to sing. New, Te New Testament religion is singing because it's of the Spirit. Remember, worship has to be of the Spirit and truth. And so we sing truth in true lyrics, and we sing by the Spirit because it's an intellectual spirit exercise of our soul with God. And a box or any other musical instrument can't do it, so that's why it only says sing in the New Testament and not play. The Bible, the Bible knows all about playing because David was the best player that there ever was. He invented the instruments, he wrote the music, and he did the playing himself, and he was a skilled musician. The format of our service that we're about to do is our choice, and God honors our choice. It's a matter of liberty, how we do it. The restriction is let all things be done decently and in order and we will do it decently and in order. Let us never give the Lord the same-o, same-o of ourselves or of others. David never did what had been done before. He was always outside the box. 
I mean, he's dancing with all of his might in the street with most of his royal robes off, which embarrassed his carnally-minded wife. David built a temple for the Lord when the temple hadn't even suggested having a temple. He did things that were not normal, and so did the Lord Jesus Christ. He came into the temple and found the money changers there and drove them out because he wanted to give the Lord something better. And what does it tell us? I heard it answered yesterday in the Bible quiz. Where is Lydia Pipkin? I heard it answered by you. The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. It says in John chapter 2 about the Lord Jesus Christ, and we want his zeal to eat us up so that we give him anything that we can give him that matches the content of Scripture, even if the format's a little different. I appreciate the excited response that I was getting late last evening with numerous texts coming into my wife about your eagerness to do this. New Testament singing equals teaching. So we're going to have teaching in this, in this service because it's going to come through the teaching of Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5.19. The lyrics, which means the words, are more important than the melody. Our melody is our grace in our hearts. And we want to do it with our intelligence, with understanding. So we are going to be sharing some things about these songs, about their writers, and about events that led to the songs. God... Our goal, our goal is to glorify our God and His Son this way. We have singing camp for this purpose, to improve our singing. The youth group has done what we're about to do for several years. They've got together and shared stories behind hymns and events behind hymns to appreciate those hymns better. Now, we've done a few over the years. No one can forget It Is Well With My Soul and Horatio Spafford losing his several daughters in the Atlantic. And then writing that song when he, when he got caught the next ship that he could and he gets near France and when he's over that water where his three daughters drown, he writes, it is well with my soul. Who can forget the story? And we've shared that one before. Look at Psalm 18. I want to share something else with you as to why we're doing this. The Lord saw fit in the inspiration and the preservation of our Bible text for some of the Psalms to leave scribal notations that tell us the person that wrote the psalm and the event that prompted the psalm, which helps us understand it better and see its perspective better and embrace the psalm better. Psalm 18 is a favorite. It's in the Bible twice. It's 2 Samuel 22. But notice, I hope that your Bibles have this. Now look at Psalm 18, when it says, David praiseth God for his manifold and marvelous blessings. That's the translators telling you that's what the psalm's about. Below it are the Jewish scribal notations about the psalm. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spake unto the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies, from the hand of Saul, and he said... Now, this particular scribal notation is inspired. How do I know it's inspired? Because in the other account of this psalm, this is verse 1. Okay, that's how we know. This one's inspired because in 2 Samuel 22, it's verse 1. Here, it's the notation at the top. The Lord made the difference just to tell us. Look at Psalm 34. You know, all I need to see in Psalm 18 is a psalm of David, and I get excited because David's the great praise and worship leader of the Bible. And it says this is when he had defeated all his enemies. So he is basking in God's goodness to him. 
But look at Psalm 34. And I know that Psalm 34 is one of the favorites in this church. Now, if you look under Psalm 34, and I've, I've got an Oxford Bible in front of me. It says, verse 1, David praiseth God and exhorteth others thereto. Verse 8, they are blessed that trust in God. Verse 11, exhortation to fear God. Verse 15, privileges of the righteous. Those are the translators giving you an outline for the psalm. Next are the Jewish scribes. A psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. He had to run from Saul, so he's living among the Philistines, and while he's among the Philistines, they remember, wait a minute, why are we letting this man named David live here? He killed Goliath. So David's, now David's afraid of the Philistines. And so he, he let saliva run down his face, and he went over and scratched at the wall. This, the Bible tells us this. And feigned that he was mad. So that Abimelech said, listen, the man's crazy. Don't, he, he's no trouble or threat to us. That's Psalm 34. So that when I, when I, Psalm 34 is one of my top 10 out of the book of Psalms. When it says in verse 6, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all of his troubles. And when it says in verse 7, The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them, it's talking about a specific event that we can embrace, that David had to be terrified, and he had just moments to beg God for help. Psalm 51, how do you know it's about David after committing adultery? Where does it say so? Psalm 51. Forget the outline. Look at the scribal notation. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now see, you assume that, you already know that, because we've been operating by those notations for a long time, and we just assume them. And so we appreciate Psalm 51 a little bit more because we know that it's that huge event, that huge sin, the multiple sins of David and how he prayed so that when we have sinned, we know how to pray. You know, Psalm 52 is about a, a razor tongue. Look at verse 2 of Psalm 52. Thy tongue deviseth mischiefs like a sharp razor, working deceitfully. But up there, we're told who it's about. To the chief musician, Maskell, a psalm of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul and said unto him, David is come to the house of Ahimelech, and it cost the lives of all the priests because of that razor-tongued Doeg the Edomite. And so we're told that, and so Psalm 52 takes on more meaning. What was all that for? Some men are going to get in this pulpit starting right now with my brother David, perfect name, after all that emphasis on David, He's the first one to respond. He encouraged my heart very much the other day when his email came flying in that he wanted to get up and do this. A man is going to get in the pulpit, take a couple of minutes to explain their song. Then Eric's going to jump in this pulpit as they sit down and lead us in singing that song. And hopefully we can sing it to the Lord with a, little, with a better perspective and a greater understanding of what those words mean. And that we will have thought about those words and we're going to give the worship to the Lord. It's all his. Amen. David? Okay, uh, I'll start with um, the words of our Savior. These are the words from the Bible. 
Um, they're in Matthew 6, Matthew 10, and uh, in the song that we're about ready to sing, you'll see uh, in the second stanza uh, Jesus' words as well from John uh, 14.1. Let me read them to you. Jesus says to his apostles as he's commissioning them to go spread the gospel uh, to every creature, he says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Yes. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore. Ye are of more value than many sparrows. And, of course, he he also says uh, in John 14, Let not your heart be troubled. These are the inspired words of our Lord and Savior behind the song that I'm about ready to introduce to you. The song is, if you didn't already guess, His Eyes on the Sparrow. Uh, it was written in 1905 by Sevilla Martin. Um, let me let her describe the context out of which this hymn was born. She writes, Early in the spring of 1905, my husband and I were sojourning in Elmira, New York. Uh, sojourning just means temporary staying for the, for the youth, just temporarily visiting. Uh, She says, we contracted, I love this old English, we contracted a deep friendship for a couple by the name of Mr. and Mrs. Doolittle, true saints of God. Mrs. Doolittle had been bedridden for nigh or nearly 20 years. Bedridden for 20 years is, is, being bedridden is serious. There's serious health complications that come along with that. Um, Her husband was an incurable cripple who had to propel himself to and from his business in a wheelchair. Despite their afflictions, they lived happily Christian lives, bringing inspiration and comfort, inspiration and comfort to all who knew them, bedridden and crippled. Okay, one day while we were visiting with the Doolittles, my husband commented on their bright hopefulness and asked them for the secret of it. Mrs. Doolittle's response, the wife's response, was simple. She said, his eye is on the sparrow. And I know he watches me. Wonderful. The beauty of this simple expression of boundless faith gripped our hearts and fired our imagination. And uh, this hymn was, was born out of that with those Bible verses that I read uh, behind it. You'll, you know the song, so you'll see them in there now, hopefully more clearly. Um, and she says, uh, the hymn, His Eyes on, on the Sparrow, was the outcome of that experience. Um, this is a song of consolation, so if you ever find yourself feeling hopeless, I mean, who among us has not felt a profound sense of loneliness at times, has been discouraged, overwhelmed, afraid, full of doubt, or even hopeless? Um, don't worry, you're not, you're not, in, you're not alone. These are, these are human emotions, and probably especially for Christians at times, possibly. Um, even David in, in the Old Testament says, Why art thou cast down, my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? The man after God's own heart struggles with these human emotions. Right. And, of course, I have to mention our Lord and Savior, um, our, our, consummate, our consummate friend, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, of course, we know he was touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He took on flesh, the Word of God. Mm-hmm. And we know, I mean, and, 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 of course, he's willing to succor us or to, to help us in times of trouble, yeah. which, which is what that word means. Um, and just three things that popped in my mind about him. The shortest sentence in the Bible, he wept. Yes. I know he experienced sadness. How about in the Garden of Gethsemane when he sweat as if it were great drops of blood? Right. So the man, even though he's God, the man 
was, was fearful at times, do you know what I mean? Or maybe even feeling overwhelmed. And how about when the soldiers came and apprehended him, all his apostles fled. Do you think he might have felt a little bit lonely? These are just maybe off the top of my head a little bit of examples that, we, that he relates to us and we can relate to him and turn to him in times of trouble and you'll see that in this song. So when you're feeling down, consider this song, um, the themes of solace and comfort in spite of sorrow or sadness and a profound sense of being under the watchful care of Jesus, who is our constant friend, should comfort and encourage us during uh, difficult times uh, down here in this life. Uh, let me just finish. Let Mrs. Doolittle's faith grip our hearts yes. and fire our imagination as we now sing His Eyes on the Sparrow. And I, I don't know if it's Eric or Newell, but I wrote down the, the page numbers in the books. It's, uh, well, it's in both books, actually. But I'll just go with the burgundy to keep it simple. It's on page 577, His Eyes on the Sparrow. 577. Thank you, brother. 577, please. His eyes on the sparrow. Do you, do you have the list? I'm sorry. Of the... Oh, there it is. Okay. Just want to call the next one while I'm here. Adam Wells, if you'll be prepared to come after this. 577, please. Why should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart be lonely and long for heaven home? When Jesus is my portion, my constant friend is he. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me.
Thanks, David, for that introduction. That's good. Adam, please. It was a daring move when, in 1707, Isaac Watts published his first book of hymns. At that time, it was the practice of almost every congregation in England to sing only the Psalms in their congregational worship. It was the Lutherans who had published the first hymnal that I know about, or have read about. However, Watts had grown to dislike this psalm singing only because it restricted the Christian from being able to explicitly celebrate in song all those aspects of the gospel that are fulfilled right. and illuminated in the New Testament. Right. In the preface to Hymns and Spiritual Songs, Watts addresses the worship situation of his time and offers a defense for writing and publishing new music. You see, many people did not accept his hymn book. They called it the whims of Watts' whims instead of hymns, and they mocked him. But here is his, the beginning of his defense. While we sing the praises of, this is his words, while we sing the praises of our God in his church, we are employed in that part of worship which of all others is the nearest akin to heaven. And tis pity that this of all others should be performed the worst upon earth. The gospel brings us nearer to the heavenly state than all the former dispensations of God amongst men. Yet we are very much unacquainted with the songs of the New Jerusalem and unpracticed in the work of praise, to see the dull indifference, the negligence, and the thoughtless air that sits upon the faces of a whole assembly while the psalm is on their lips might tempt even a charitable observer to suspect the fervency of inward religion. And tis much to be feared that the minds of most of the worshipers are absent or unconcerned. Within Watts' book, under the section Celebration of the Lord's Supper, is the first public printing of When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Amen. Concerning the hymn's creation, there is no special story that singles it from among the many others he wrote. Now he is credited with something like 750 hymns. But what makes the hymn unique is the particular beauty of its language and imagery and the power with which it highlights the most significant event in human and personal history, the cross of Jesus Christ, yes. our God. Right. Watts' giftedness for writing hymns combined with his courage in publishing them 
would eventually turn the tide against singing only psalms and to set a new standard for Christian worship in the English language. Today, Watts is widely recognized as the father of English hymnody. When I Survey the Wondrous Cross is among the greatest of the hymns that he wrote. Now, I will read one other, the, the conclusion on his preface to his hymns. This is what he said. Now, remember, churches did not sing hymns. They only sang the psalms. If the Lord who inhabits the praises of Israel shall refuse to smile upon this attempt for the reformation of psalmody amongst the churches, yet I humbly hope that his blessed spirit will make these composures useful to private Christians. And if they may but attain the honor of being esteemed pious meditations to assist the devout and the retired soul in the exercises of love, faith, and joy, twill be a valuable compensation of my labors. My heart shall rejoice at the notice of it, and my God shall receive the glory. Amen. Do I need to translate? He said, even if these songs never get sung in the churches, if an individual at home will read them and it brings them closer to God, I, my heart is cheered. All my efforts are not in vain. Amen. Let us then not show a cold indifference about which Watts complained, but rather a fervency of spirit, expressive of, the, of being affected by the words that we sang. And so with that thought, let us sing when I survey the wondrous cross. Brother Eric. Amen. 158 in your burgundy. That's good. Thank you, Adam. This will be followed with by Jim Cutler, please. 158. When I survey the
Amen. Amen. Good. Brother Jim. If you'd like to take your red hymnal, turn to number 53. The hymn is Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, by a man named not sure how he would pronounce it in German, but since I'm not German, I'm going to say Joachim Neander, who lived from 1650 to 1680, a mere 30 years. Believe it or not, this man's name is where the term Neanderthal comes from. Uh, I didn't know that, but it turns out that the valley that Neanderthal refers to, Neander being his name and Tal being valley in German, Neanderthal is where they found the skeleton of a human being, much like us, who they think is some other species. It always makes me angry to read about stupid evolution theory. All you have to do is read it. I got a quote from the New York Times about it. One should stress that at this point, this is pure speculation, said Dr. So-and-so, the co-author of something about evolutionary anthropology. <laughs> but anyway, that's not what this is about. Uh, Joachim Neander was born in Bremen, Germany in 1650 and was the eldest child to Johann, or probably Johann, uh, Joachim Neander and Katrina Nipping, and that they were married in, in 1649. He was the master of third form in the Perigium, uh, Paradigium, I should say, at Bremen, which was a, a Paradigium, which is like a school. Um, the family name was originally Newman, just like we use Newman or Neiman. But the grandfather uh, of the poet had assumed that uh, the Greek form of the name, which was popular at that time, and called, it ne called themselves Neander from that point forward. So it turns out that he was an average student and went to um, what amounted to a college. It was called the uh, Academic Gymnasium in Bremen. They couldn't afford the, one of the more uh, popular colleges in 1666. So um, in the 17th century, German student life was anything but refined, and he seems to have been just joining in with the riotous um, and questionable pleasures of most of his fellows at the time. However, in 1670, he heard Theodore Under Eich, uh, who came to Bremen as pastor of St. Martin's Church, and he had the reputation of a pietist and a holder of con uh, convocations, a pietist, we might say, um, uh, of holiness. Yes. Not, not long after, um, Neander, with two of his like-minded comrades, went to the service there on one Sunday in order to criticize and find a matter of amusement of this man. But the earnest words of Under Ike touched his heart. In other words, the Lord opened his eyes. And with his subsequent conversations with Under Ike, it proved the turning point in his spiritual life. Wonderful. And in the spring of 1971, he became the tutor of five young men and, and went on from there. There's a lot about him if you ever look him up, but I'm going to highlight a few. When he was the tutor of these young men, he accompanied them to the University of Heidelberg, where it appears he got his love for and knowledge of nature. And um, in subsequent time, in 1674, he was appointed rector, which is a teacher, of Latin school at Dusseldorf. And then in 1679, he was invited to Bremen as an unordained assistant of Under Eich at St. Martin's Church and began that process that wasn't really an inviting post, unordained and so forth, and it was regarded as merely a stepping stone to further preferment. And the remuneration, remuneration, which is his pay, was a free house and 40 dollars a year. And that's not dollars, it's dollars, but 
Um, and his only duty on Sunday was to be a to begin a service uh, with a sermon at the extraordinary hour of 5 a.m. So that he was uh, pushed to the early service. Um, <laughs> later, he was, uh, and so he was a member, and he was considered the first important hymn writer of the German Reformed Church. So they were Calvinist in their beliefs. Um, but uh, it was not until after he was he swore to shut his mouth and stop disagreeing with the church that he wrote all of his hymns, and I'll tell a little bit about that. Um, the school at Dusseldorf was entirely under the control of ministers and elders of the Reformed Church there. So the minister from about uh, 1673 to 1677 was a gentleman whose name is irrelevant, a man of ability and eagerness, but jealous, and in later times at least quarrelsome. And with him, Neander was uh, at first worked harmoniously, fr frequently preaching in the church and assisting in the visitation of the sick, etc. But soon he introduced practices, Neander introduced practices, which inevitably brought on a conflict. He began to hold prayer meetings of his own. Imagine that, having the audacity. Without informing or consulting the ministers and elders, he began to absent himself from Holy Communion on the ground that he could not conscientiously communicate along with the unconverted and also persuaded others to follow this example and became less regular in his attendance at the ordinary services of the church. Besides these causes of offense, he drew out a timetable for the school. He made alterations to the school buildings. He had examinations and appointed holidays without consulting anyone. The result of all this was a visitation of the school in 1676 and then his suspension from school and pulpit in 1677. But shortly after, about two weeks after, he signed a full and definite declaration by which without mental reservations, he bound himself not to repeat any of his acts complained of, and thereupon was permitted to resume his duties as rector, but not as assistant minister. The suspension lasted only 14 days and his salary was never actually stopped. The statements that he was banished from Dusseldorf and that he lived for months in a cave in the Neanderthal near Metmen are therefore without foundation. In other words, that's a, a, a myth more than likely, because it was only 14 days. But that valley was still what was renamed after Neander, and it was called Neanderthal, that valley um, that the Neanderthal comes from. So Neander, thus thrown back on himself, found consolation in communion with God and nature in the composition of his hymns. And I could say more about him, but the, the net net of it is we know and love this song, Praise to the Almighty. It is a song primarily about creation, but we shouldn't miss the fact that it's not just about creation. Right. It's the second phrase. I think it's the second. Let's see here. Praise to the Lord, who are all things wondrously reigneth, shelters thee under his wings, yea, so gently sustaineth. Hast thou not seen? Nope, that wasn't the right one. Sorry. There's salvation in one of these, and whenever you stand up here in the pulpit, your eyeballs get crossed, and you can't find what you're looking for. Right, Newell? Yep. Well, let's sing it, and we'll, we'll go ahead and find it as we sing. But this is based on Psalm 103, and as, as uh, our brother Joshua got up this morning and called out Psalm 104, my heart left a little bit that maybe it was going to be Psalm 103, but Psalm 104 is almost a twin uh, about creation in Psalm 103, so I think this is appropriate for that as well. And I'm going to lead this one. Brother Eric giving me permission to do so. Let's sing hymn number 53, Praise to the Lord the Almighty. And let's go ahead and stand. <laughs> Praise to the Lord the Almighty, the King of creation. Oh, my soul, 
Thank you. Please be seated. It was, it was verse 4. I'm sorry I couldn't find it. And at the end of verse 3, he's going to befriend thee, and then he's going to be put his wings and over or shadow thee so that he protects and guides you. So much more than just celebrating creation, but God's goodness and the way that he cares like he cares for the sparrows. Oh, the next person, thank you, is Nathan Crosby. I was pleasantly surprised yesterday when I submitted my request for a hymn to find out that it's a favorite of several, and it had been on the minds uh, in a presentation form of my mother as well. So I present to you our presentation of our hymn. In 1844, a young Irishman by the name of Joseph Scriven had completed his college education and returned home to marry his childhood sweetheart. As he was traveling to meet her on the day before their planned wedding, he came into the town to see her body being lifted out of a river where she had been flung off of a horse, knocked unconscious and drowned. Later, Scriven, who had moved for religious freedoms as well as not wanting to be in that town any longer, had found himself in Ontario, Canada, where he eventually fell in love again with the niece of the gentleman that he was tutoring children for, only to experience devastation once more when she became ill with pneumonia and died weeks before their marriage. That was at 34. And so for the second time, this humble Christian had lost the woman that he loved. It is with those events that caused this man to be the man that he was and say the things that he does in this hymn. In between those two events, his mother had, felt, had fallen terribly ill back in Ireland, and unable to afford the trip there to see her, he penned her a poem. This poem was to comfort her and to explain to her his deep friendship with his Jesus that he had cultivated through prayer and through the hardships of his own life. This poem was first published anonymously under the title, Pray Without Ceasing, but 10 years later, he finally acknowledged this well-loved text had been written by him and his friend, Jesus. In 1868, the attorney Charles Converse set the text to a tune and renamed it, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Instead of thinking on God's God for punishing him during these events, rather, he cherished God's friendship through all these hardships, a friendship he discovered in prayer. He's quoted as saying, he saw his creator not as an impersonal force to be feared, but as a friend. Wonderful. May we learn that our relationship with God will grow the same way in prayer. Amen. 228 in the Burgundy. Joshua Unger, if you'll follow after this. Number 228, please. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. 
to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so Burgundy 548 is O Love That Will Not Let Me Go, written by George Matheson, lived 1842 to 1906. He was known as the blind preacher. He was a Scottish minister and a hymn writer, although he only wrote one book, um, and he was not a musician. Um, oldest of eight children, only one with eye trouble. Um, he went to Glasgow Academy and then Glasgow University into the Presbyterian Church. Um, and there's a fair amount of history about him in that. Um, when he was in school, because of his poor eyesight, he used uh, you know, powerful glasses, of course, and would sit next to the light because he could not see, and it was diminishing over time. And so not long after he finished his studies, he got to the point where he was completely dependent on somebody else to do most of the things in his life. Um, uh, but he had a great reputation that even in light of this affliction and ailment um, of his poor eyesight, he was a very joyful man. And that was, as you read, he was known for that uh, and had a great spirit to know that the Lord had done that and he wasn't discouraged about it at all. And, um, but he did have, and I could not confirm this, there was both um, statements on, uh, to verify and deny um, that he did have a struggle at one point in his life um, was alluded to anyway, um, that he went basically completely blind at age 20, and shortly before that, a young woman had rebuffed him and said, I will not marry you because I will not be married to a blind man. And I'm sure that was just horrifying and deeply painful for that man. Um, regardless of whether that's true or not, in a moment you'll hear a testimony of before he wrote this hymn um, uh, that something uh, ailed him in his mind uh, before he wrote it. Um, 
So, even though he had all this loneliness in his life, as they say, he had some sisters, and his eldest sister was a caretaker for him and even helped him to uh, dictate and write some of his sermons that he would preach uh, and other things. But on the, well, I'll just read what he said. Here, so here's what he says about this hymn himself. He says, my hymn was composed in the manse. Uh, I think is how you say that. That's the house occupied by the minister of a Presbyterian church. My hymn, he says, was composed in the manse in Inelin, which is in uh, Argyleshire, Scotland. That's a great spot. On the evening of the 6th of June, 1882, when I was 40 years of age, I was alone in the manse at the time. It was the night of my sister's marriage, and the rest of my family were staying overnight in Glasgow. Something happened to me, uh, which was known only to myself and which caused me the most severe mental suffering. This hymn was the fruit of that suffering. It was the quickest bit of work I had ever did in my life. I had the impression of having it dictated to me by some inward voice rather than of working it out myself. I'm quite sure that the whole work was completed in five minutes, and equally sure that it received, uh, never received at my hands any retouching or correction. I have no natural gift of rhythm. All the other verses I have ever written are manufactured articles. This came like a day spring from on high. Um, so he was touched some way to compose this, whether it was because of the grief of losing his sister uh, to marriage that caretake him or whatever it was, um, uh, he was moved. Verse one of the hymn, just a couple points to think about. Verse one, that our greatness only comes from giving our life over to Christ. Verse two, the only way to bring true light to the darkness of this world is to allow God's glory to be reflected or in the yeah. him borrowed uh, in our life. Right. Verse 3, the rainbow, the promise of the rainbow, stands as a promise to be traced back to God's deep-seated God's deep joy of deliverance. Um, just like he did for Noah and his family, we can look at that and see how uh, uh, the Lord delivers us as well yes. and promises to do so. And then, uh, best of all, in verse 4, uh, it, that it is the cross of Christ that lifts up our downcast uh, head with eternal hope. So whether it's that circumstance or we've heard from several of the other hymns, um, when we focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and the hope of heaven above, all becomes very, very clear. So even though it was a maybe tragedy that was uh, afflicting this man, can we please sing this song with a little bit of smile on our lips, so love that will not let me go. Amen. Amen. Thank you. All right, it's 548, Burgundy Books, and after this, we'll ask Jonah Unger to come. 548. Oh, love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in
teaches me through pain. I cannot close my heart to Thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain that morn shall tearless be. O cross that lifteth up my head, I dare not ask to hide from thee. I lay in dust life's glory dead, Life that shall then last be. Amen. Outstanding. Good. Jonah, please. If you want to go ahead and turn, turn to it, it's 649 in the red. More love to thee. The author of this hymn, Elizabeth Payson Prentice, was born in Portland, Maine in 1818, the daughter of a Congregationalist pastor. She was the fifth of eight children, two of which did not survive infancy. Her father, after suffering from tuberculosis for over a year, died the week before she turned nine years old, and it affected her very deeply, I read. When she was 27, she married a man who shortly after became a pastor in Massachusetts. Seven years into that marriage, she lost two children in the span of three months, a newborn and a four-year-old. Elizabeth also suffered from chronic health problems. For most of her life, she was a near invalid. Her body was often racked with pain. When reflecting on this, she said, I see now that to live for God, whether one is allowed ability to be actively useful or not, is a great thing. Yes. And that it is a wonderful mercy to be allowed even to suffer, if thereby one can glorify, God, glorify Him. I also found this quote of hers. And I believe she's talking about this song when she said this. To love Christ more is the deepest need, the constant cry of the soul. Out in the woods and on my bed and out driving, when I am happy and busy and when I am sad and idle, the whisper keeps going up for more love, more love, more love. The reason I wanted to sing this in the red hymnal, we often sing it in the burgundy, is that the third verse in the red is not in the old school hymnal. Let sorrow do its work, come grief or pain. Sweet are thy messengers, sweet the refrain, when they can sing with me. More love, O Christ, to thee, more love to thee, more love to thee.
We'll ask Matthew Eastland to come up next. 649 Red Hymn Books. More love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. I'll just mention, tag on to this just very briefly, that she was a special woman and she wrote a book or a book was written about her life called Stepping Heavenward. And if you haven't read it, it'd make an outstanding book to read as a family or for any especially teenage girls that are in the congregation, I would highly recommend it. We've read it as a family before. Stepping Heavenward by Elizabeth Prentice. Next, we'll have uh, Matthew Eastland, please. If 
you want to get there already, and I'll help you just a little bit, you can turn in your Burgundy hymnals to number 146. How firm a foundation. This is another one that does not have a specific story relating to its creation. I, I, I don't have anything particularly touching to tell you, but I want you to learn a couple simple things from this. I want you to learn a little bit about Baptist history, because this one was written by a Baptist. Be thankful for that, because, you know, I love some of these other hymns. I love Isaac Watts, but he was a Congregationalist. He had lots of problems. This was written by someone who believed like us. Secondly, I want you to understand a little bit about humility, and I want you to understand about a love of singing the words of God. Let me correct something right away. The old school hymnal attributes this to George Keith. In truth, we don't know who wrote this. There are six different candidates, all belonging to the same church. For humility, the man who is listed as the author of this is simply the letter K. That's it. Didn't need his name attached to it. Didn't want his name attached to it. Future people came along and tried to attribute this to a particular person. And again, there's six different candidates, three of which were brothers, who could have been the author of this. But I want to talk to you for just a moment about the man who published it. You can see here it's listed as from Rippon's Selections in 1787. This was published in 1787 as part of a collection of hymns. And it was done by the Baptist minister, John Rippon. To clarify, Rippon Selections is what we call it today because the title of the hymnal that was written is very long. It's like 20 words long, and it doesn't include his name anywhere because he didn't want his name attached to it. In fact, the name he wanted listed is the man who inspired him to do this, Isaac Watts. He wrote his hymnal, collected together a bunch of different men's works from his church in order to add as an addendum to the works already existing of Isaac Watts because he wanted God glorified and he wanted someone who inspired him glorified instead of himself. As far as John Rippon goes, he was a man who started studying for the ministry at age 17. And at the age of 20, the minister that he had studied under died, a man that some of us might know by the name of John Gill. And he took over John Gill's church and pastored it for the next 63 years. He gave his entire life to the ministry of that church and helped it grow and led it so that just a couple years after his death, another minister came along. You might have heard of him, Charles Spurgeon, took over that church and turned it into the largest church in England. So the man who did this, you can, you can look and see the writing of it. You can see the inspiration. I have misattributed this many times to Isaac Watts because of the format. I mean, it's, it's pulling passages from the Word of God and making them into music, and then just like Watts, couldn't be satisfied with the Old Testament, had to throw in something about Christ. Wanted to go higher than just reminders from the book of Isaiah, which is what the rest of this is. So here are men who are inspired by Isaac Watts and didn't even care about having their names listed with it. They cared about the word of God and God being glorified. I'm thankful for this hymn. It, it's been a joy to me for years, and I'm thankful to know that it's a brother in Christ who we would have agreed with in almost every single way doctrinally. I'm thankful. I think that will have to be our last one. I believe we'd have to do that. It being 1226 and being told to close by 1230. Okay, that's good. Thank you, Matthew. If you all will stand with me then, stand together.
and we'll sing number 146. How firm a foundation ye saints of the Lord it is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to Yeah. 
Amen. Amen. Thank you, brothers, very much for participating. Thank you very much for bringing those. The variety was excellent. The variety reflected the variety of Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16. Psalms. Was Psalm 103 used? Hymns and spiritual songs. And reflected the variety of your souls at this given weekend, which we do change from time to time so the different songs become our favorites given the topic. The spiritually mindedness of those writers should have got all of our attention Amen. about how spiritually minded they were, whether they were suffering or what they wrote about in, the, like the words, more love to thee, O Christ. Obviously, you know what we may do again very soon, like next Sunday in the second service. <laughs> Let me remind you that this is New Testament religion stated this way by two passages, one from Paul in Hebrews 13 and one from Peter in 1 Peter 2. I read two verses to you. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Amen. We don't burn animals. We don't bring rivers of oil or wine being drink offerings. We bring the sacrifice of praise of our lips right. Right. and through Jesus Christ that is made acceptable. Our Father in heaven, we have worshipped thee in a different way in this second service. We have sung to thee for decades, and we love the privilege, and we thank thee for the passion that you've put in us for it. But we've given thee this in this second assembly, that we might think more soberly upon the words, because the Savior has taught us by his apostles that we are to sing with the understanding. And so we understood these songs better by the introduction to them by our brethren. We thank thee for this privilege. Receive our worship, being made acceptable through Jesus Christ our Lord. We desire to give thee the fruit of our lips for the rest of our days. Enable us, preserve us, keep us by your mighty power. We pray in Jesus' glorious name. Amen. You are dismissed.